continue our our march through the Beatitudes this morning back in Matthew chapter 5. And I've called this Good Morning. So the King's Speech is, you know, the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus continues to go through it for three chapters. And we covered Blessed are the Poor in Spirit last week, so we will do... Um, this next verse, which is very impactful, but closely follows what Jesus was talking about last week. In Luke chapter 7, we have a very well-known story. And Jesus had been invited to the house of a Pharisee to have dinner. And as he's there, he arrives at the house and everybody sits down to eat. And as he's sitting there, as they're getting ready to eat, in walks a woman, a woman that was not invited and we're told very specifically that she was a sinner. And we take that to mean that uh, she either is or was a prostitute. And she enters the room holding this alabaster jar of perfume or oil. And she's standing behind Jesus and she starts to bow at his feet and tries to clean his feet with her tears. She's crying so much. Can you imagine how much you would have to cry? to wash somebody's dirty, stinky, dusty feet. But that's exactly what she does. She's crying so much, she cleans his feet, and then she takes her hair, and she uses her hair to wipe them off. And everybody's watching this happen. And that's exactly what she does when she starts to worship Jesus in this way. And once she has cleaned his feet and washed his feet and dried them off, then she anoints his feet with this oil, with this perfume. This would have been an extremely extravagant act of worship, very costly. But she was in a place where she had lost all of her sense of dignity, all of her pride, and she was broken with no hope of fixing herself, so she looks to the only one who can. And lots of times we get inhibited in our worship. I think I told this story when we were talking about worship the last time because we get self-conscious of what other people might think if they see us or hear us. You guys are so lucky to have Elena up here leading worship because if it was me, wouldn't be as good. <laughs> I'd be a little self-conscious about it. But this woman who is completely fixed on Jesus, she doesn't care who's he's her. She doesn't care who's around. She was just wanting to worship Jesus. And she's risking a lot just even being there, or so it would seem. But she loved Jesus, and she was very aware of her sinful state. And when you love Jesus, and you have the perspective that we talked about last week, the distance between his holiness and our sinfulness, you no longer care who's around you. You no longer care who sees you. You simply want to enter into worship and pour it out on the Lord. Um, what we do here, this is not a concert. Obviously, it's not a performance. This is just an opportunity for us to come together, lay aside everything that hinders us from getting to the Lord, and just pour it out on him. He's the only one that truly knows you, only truly knows us, and yet loves us in spite of that, which is a pretty amazing thought. Um, and this woman who's doing this, when she's doing this, the Pharisee is thinking to himself, man, if this guy was a prophet, like people say he is, like he would know what kind of woman this is that's touching him because she's a sinner. And Jesus knows what he's thinking. And so at that moment, he tells the Pharisee, Simon is his name. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon says, okay, go ahead and say it. And so this is what he says. It's Luke 7, starting in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they cannot pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Now, which of them will you think will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that she came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That is what good morning looks like. I call this good morning um, because what Jesus is talking about here is how we mourn how we have sorrow, how we weep. Last week, we talked about the beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we have, when we have the right understanding of who we are in comparison to God's holiness, we get humbled. We get humbled in a good way. And not just taken down a notch, okay? Not just taken down a notch, but completely humbled. All sense of pride, all sense of arrogance, arrogance is gone, um, when we dwell on his saving grace. And it's really just kind of short of despair, honestly. It's not despair, um, just short of that. Because despair would be, um, you know, our situation is so hopeless and we feel like God doesn't care about us, so we've given up on God, is what despair is. But God has not given up on us. He's not given up on you and me. He stands ready to give us that spirit of humility as soon as we ask and we can receive it. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble gives grace to the humble. And we receive grace, but we also inherit his kingdom. That's the blessing. When we're subject to him, when we place our lives under his lordship, we become heirs with Jesus. And we get to trade this broken mess, this broken world for an eternal one, for his kingdom. That's what it is to be poor in spirit. Happier the humble is what we called last week. And when we see ourselves more clearly and our need for forgiveness, it will lead us to mourn over our sins. That's why this woman was weeping, because her sins were many, and she was weeping over them. Our text today is just one verse, uh, Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, I said last week that the blessings and promises that are in the Beatitudes don't seem to match up. They seem pretty paradoxical, uh, because they're not the stuff that the world says makes up happiness. Uh, it seems so obvious in this one that nobody would even dare debate it. Like, how can you be happy if you are mourning? How can you be blessed if you're sad? I tell it a good morning because this is what Jesus is talking about today. It follows being poor in spirit, the proper way that we should mourn. And King David, a guy that was familiar with mourning, he said this in Psalm 55, verses 4 through 8. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Anguish, terror, fear, and horror. David here wants to disappear. He wants to fly away. He wants to escape. And I think most of us at some point in our lives have said these words. We have felt this way, where we wanted to escape. It's a, it's a cry for release, for freedom. And 
you know, freedom from the things that weigh us down, whether that's disappointment or sorrow or tragedy or failure. And we long to find comfort. That's what we're looking for. And unfortunately, finding comfort for these things that disappoint us, for these difficulties in life, is a lot harder to find than it is to find comfort or shelter from the rain. Because the deeper the sorrow, the harder the pressure, and the worse the despair, the more elusive the comfort seems to be. And so, as creatures of comfort, especially here in the West, we do everything we can. We, you know, orchestrate our lives to reduce as much pain as possible. Uh, we recreate our own comfort, really, is what we do, to minimize the pain, anything that might steal our happiness. And the world would say that pleasure brings happiness, or entertainment brings happiness, or fame, or praise, or self-expression. All of those things bring happiness in the world's eyes. But here says, Jesus says, in effect, happy are the sad. He even goes on to say in Luke 6, he says, Woe to you that laugh now, because later you will mourn and you will weep. Which is the exact opposite of what we're talking about here today. But once again, Jesus is turning things upside down. To discover what Jesus means in this verse and what he didn't mean, we're going to just take a look at mourning, uh, as it's used here, the proper way to mourn, and then the result of that mourning. Certain kinds of sorrow are common to all of mankind, believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, some things we're just all going to experience. Uh, some are normal and legitimate, and some are illegitimate, brought on by, you know, you know, sinful passions, sinful desires, um, abnormal, uh, you know, uh, affinities, if you will. But God knows the sorrows and concerns that we have, um, and he wants to comfort us for that if they are legitimate. Um, to get a better picture of what Jesus wants us to see here, let's take a look at what improper mourning looks like. Uh, improper mourning is sorrow or sadness of those that are frustrated over things that did not work out the way they wanted them to. Um, these could be selfish things, uh, selfish things like lusts or misguided loyalties, um, selfish, sinful plans that did not work out. And for those people that mourn about those things, God has no comfort. He has no comfort for those things. Speaking of David, uh, mentioned David a couple times uh, today, but he had a son named Amnon. And Amnon was in such grief, he was sick to his stomach over an improper desire, a lust for his sister Tamar. And because he had an unfulfilled lust, he could not have Tamar, he was sick to his stomach. Um, his sorrow was due to that unfulfilled desire, and he had an illegitimate sorrow due to an illegitimate desire, and ultimately that gave way to sin in their lives. Um, others have a legitimate so sorrow, but carry it to an illegitimate extreme. Uh, this is very easy to do for all of us, something that I have experience with. Uh, when a person grieves so long and so hard over a loved one that they cannot function normally, then this grief is entering into territory that is destructive and sometimes sinful. Uh, you might say, Nathan, how could mourning over the loss of a loved one be sinful? Um, when sorrow reaches the point of crippling depression, it's usually related to some kind of guilt. And it is essentially selfish in nature. Um, and to be real blunt for the Christian, uh, you know, mourning like this to the point where it's crippling and debilitating in uh, depression, uh, it's a mark of unfaithfulness and really a lack of trust in God, thinking that we know better than what God does. 
Now, I'm not being insensitive. Most of you know uh, our story. We've walked through this valley. Um, But even David said, he said, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. I won't fear because you are with me. It's not what I want. It's not what I, you know, had planned on, but I trust you. Um, When that mourning is taken to the extreme, you start to define yourself by that loss. It's no longer just part of your story, but it actually is your story when you start to define yourself by that. Um, And as a Christ follower, our identity is to be in the Lord, not in the difficulties in our life. Uh, Grief, sorrow, trouble, all of these things are going to be part of our story here on earth. Uh, But if we say that our trust is in the Lord, if we say that his ways are higher than our ways, and we surrender those hurts to him, we take them to him, and we find comfort there. Um, He is to be the center of our existence, not us, not selfishly. When David, David had another son named Absalom, and his son Absalom was killed in battle, and he had a legitimate grief that was taken to an illegitimate extreme. Um, Absalom was rebellious. He actually led a coup against his father. He pushed David off the throne, took up his seat. David had to flee with his family. But when David gets the news that his son Absalom had been slain in battle, he goes into inconsolable mourning. But Absalom's judgment was deserved. I mean, he had a revolt against his dad. And David's commander, because David had gone into inconsolable mourning, his commander Joab, who had been with him for quite some time, had to go in and rebuke him. Imagine going in to rebuke the king. And he goes in. This is what he says in 2 Samuel 19. Then Joab came into the house to David and said, You have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that Absalom, if he were alive, all of us, and if all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth till now. Because of his inconsolable, improper mourning. And while his mourning was understandable, he took it to an unhealthy extreme um, and it brought shame on those closest to him. And that's not godly sorrow. Uh, There are, of course, all kinds of legitimate sorrows um, that happen to mankind for which reasonable mourning is totally acceptable. Um, Proper mourning opens up an escape valve for our feelings, for our emotions, so they don't infect us, so they don't empoison us uh, for the rest of our lives. Uh, Proper mourning provides a way to healing. And just like a wound that needs to be washed out, that's exactly what mourning does for us. You know, Abraham mourned the death of his wife, Sarah. Um, Abraham did. David mourned when he felt a separation or a loneliness from God. Defeat and discouragement caused Timothy to mourn, leading Paul, his spiritual father, to write to him, I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Anguish and concern for the sins of Israel led Jeremiah the prophet to mourn. Uh, He was known as the weeping prophet because he was weeping over the country. And he said, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes fountains of tears, that I may weep day and night for the slain of my daughter of my people. Concern for the spiritual welfare of the Ephesians led Paul to write, Night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Is what Paul wrote. 
It was divine love that caused Jesus to weep at the death of Lazarus and also at the sinning of the people of Jerusalem when he stood there on the hill before he went into Jerusalem as he's sitting on the donkey and said, you know, that he wanted to gather all of them together as a hen gathers her chicks and Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. There's, a, a, there's an Arab saying, there's a Sarab, uh, saying in the Arab community that says all sunshine makes a desert. If all you experience in your life is sunshine, you're going to have a very dry, very shallow existence. I read a poem this week by, I just sit around and read poetry sometimes. Um, <laughs> I read a poem by a guy named Robert Hamilton that expresses this truth. It says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and never had a, a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. We learn exponentially more during the difficult times than we ever do during times of peace. I think that anybody who's walked through difficult times would admit to that. It gives us that you know, perspective that we talked about last week, uh, makes us rearrange our priorities. Uh, we ask questions. We stay closer to God. Uh, God uses the brokenness of this world to keep his sheep close to him. Uh, we've been talking about the 23rd Psalm in our small group and talking about the ways that, you know, a shepherd um, will use, and we'll get to this later on, uses difficulty and, um, you know, when he goes through places to keep the sheep close to him. But the morning that Jesus is talking about in this beatitude is different, um, has nothing to do with all these different types of worldly sorrow. Um, God is concerned for our legitimate sorrows um, for his children, and he promises comfort and strength to us when we come to him. Um, but that's not the kind of sorrow that Jesus is talking about here in this verse. He's talking about a godly sorrow, a godly mourning that only those who want to belong to him or already do belong to him can experience. This is what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Paul is writing to the church. Now, the Corinthian church uh, struggled with all kinds of worldly things. They were kind of a mess, uh, the church in Corinth. But that's for our eternal benefit uh, because Paul wrote to them over and, um, a couple times. And he says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. The only sorrow that brings spiritual life, spiritual maturity is over sin is what leads to repentance. That's the only sorrow that brings spiritual life is if it leads to repentance over our sin. It's linked to repentance, and repentance is linked to sin. Uh, without our sense of spiritual poverty, we're not going to be able to enter the narrow gate. We have to recognize our spiritual poverty. The good news is that we have been forgiven, we have been restored, God gives us comfort, but we also have to be keenly aware, as Paul said, that in me dwells no good thing. Did anyone see that story in the news this week about the nun in Los Angeles, in L.A.? There was a nun in L.A. that was overseeing a school there who was caught and convicted of embezzling over $835,000 from this school that she oversaw there. And she embezzled the money to fund a gambling habit that she had 
This was a bad deal. So we can own Bibles, we can go to church, we can wear crosses, we can even listen to Caleb in our car. But if we do not have the realization that in me dwells no good thing, then we're not going to be poor in spirit, and we're certainly not going to mourn over our sin. We may feel bad about it, but regret is not repentance. God loves and he honors a, moral, a morally upright life, but it's no substitute for a humble and a contrite heart. That's where we need to get to. Uh, there are nine words in the Greek language to describe sorrow. Uh, that just speaks to how common it is in the human existence. It's been said that the human story really is a story of tears. Um, we get defined sometimes by our grief. Um, but as much as humanitarian groups and as much as governments want to try to fix the world and make it a better place, um, I've got news for you. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Je Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24 that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are but the birth pangs. And until Jesus comes back, this world will move from one tragedy to another, from one sorrow to a greater sorrow. Of the nine words used in the Greek, the one that's used here is a word called pentheo, which is the strongest or the most severe of the words for sorrow. It's usually reserved for the grief that people feel when they lose a loved one. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which is called the Septuagint, this word is used to describe Jacob's sorrow when he thought his son Joseph was dead. It was used of the disciples when they had their grief over mourning um, on Jesus when he had died before they knew that he had risen from the dead. And I thought this was interesting. It is the same word that's used in Revelations 18 that speaks of the world business leaders when they grieve over the death of its commerce because of the destruction of the worldly system in the tribulation. It's an inward agony. Uh, it was used of David as well during his sorrow, but when he stopped holding his sin in, when he stopped hiding it, and he began to mourn over it and confess it, he would declare in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Happy is the one who's forgiven, whose sins have been scattered as far as the east is from the west. Interesting note about that. If you get on a plane and you start traveling east, you are always going to be traveling east, indefinitely. Same thing with the west. I'm glad that David did not write as far as the north is from the south, because if you go far enough north, eventually you're going to be going south. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he's trying to convey here is that when you repent, when you confess, when your sins are forgiven, they're gone. Jesus is not going to bring them up again. It's gone. You know who brings it up? The devil brings it up constantly. The devil is called the accuser of the brethren uh, because he pulls up that file folder and he starts playing, you know, he starts playing the PowerPoint of your life. All the sins that you've committed, he keeps reminding you of. That's called condemnation. Um, that's not conviction. That's what the devil does. Condemnation. He tries to condemn you for your sins that you've already been forgiven of. If you're not sick over sin, if you're still in the pig pen, if you're still enjoying that, then the Lord can convict you of that sin. There's a huge difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation comes from the enemy. Um, for the Christian, though, sin and happiness is incompatible. The two can't go together. Um, where one is present, the other cannot be. But we can say, we can say, 
The devil needs to get out of here because we have already been forgiven for those sins. God's not going to bring it up again. We should not be mourning over sins that have already been forgiven. We should rejoice over the fact that God's provided a path to forgiveness through his son. That's his comfort. Happiness actually doesn't come from the morning itself. It comes from what God does with it. It doesn't come from the morning, but it comes from what God does with it. It brings a freedom. It brings a joy that we can't experience in any other way. Um, here's what our good buddy James has to say about it. In James 4, it says, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. If we humble ourselves before him, he's going to be the one that lifts you up. He's going to comfort you. Uh, There is a great need in the church today to cry instead of laugh. Uh, We have a lot of laughter in the church today. Um, There's nothing wrong with laughter. I like to laugh. Um, I like to laugh a lot. Uh, I tell Alicia from time to time, I said, you know, when bad things happen in life, you have two options. You can either laugh or you can cry. And I'm not fond of crying. I'm just not. Um, But if all we do is laugh and we never address the topic of sin and of holiness and of being set apart, then we grieve the Holy Spirit. To not address sin, to not address our sorrow or mourning over sin is like a doctor trying to treat cancer like he's treating a cold. Because it's not going to get the job done. It's pride, honestly. Um, to not address sin, to not have sorrow over it, to not recognize our need for repentance. Pride will laugh continually and never mourn. Uh, The Bible calls that scoffing, is what it calls it. Scoffing at God, scoffing at sin, being prideful. But the longer you walk with the Lord, uh, the more you mature as a believer, the more we can appreciate God's grace and mercy. Because not only do we see more of our sin, but we see more of the world's sin. See more of the world's sin as well. Um, Have you ever heard a song that you used to listen to when you were younger and you listen to the lyrics and you're like, yikes, we were sitting out at a Royals game once and the song started playing and I'm like, oh man, cover the ear. I'm like, how are they even playing this song here? Yeah. The more we mature, the more we see the distance between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Um, That's why we see Paul's progression as he starts off writing, I am the least of the apostles. That's what he writes in 1 Corinthians. And then he goes on to write, I'm the least of the saints in Ephesians. And then eventually towards the end of his life, he writes to Timothy, I am actually the chiefest of sinners. He goes through that progression. The longer he walks with the Lord, the more he sees, the more he's keenly aware of his sin nature. Here's what the prophet Isaiah said to the people of Israel. He said, In that day the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for boldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. God said, It's time to mourn over your sin. And the people said, Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die. So let's not mourn over our sin. Let's party. John MacArthur, who's uh, accused quite often of being a grumpy old man, uh, said this. He said, much of the church today has a defective sense of sin, which is reflected in a defective sense of humor. When even its own members make the church the butt of jokes, make light of its beliefs and ordinances, and caricature its leaders as inept and clownish, and make its high standards of purity and righteousness the subject of humorous commentary, the church has a great need to turn its laughter into mourning. 
Charles Spurgeon said, you can be sure that the church that the world loves will be a church that the Lord abhors or that the Lord hates. There are several ways we can react to our sins. Like the Pharisees, we can simply deny it. And we can pretend that we're actually spiritually rich when we're actually very spiritually poor. Or as some people who feel guilty about their sin but don't know what to do about it, they can try to change it in their own efforts. Try to, you know, develop their own righteousness. Or we can admit our condition and fall into despair to such a degree that we try to drown it out with alcohol or hide or escape, you know, into drugs or any other kind of addiction. Or like the prodigal, we can admit our condition, we can mourn over it, we can repent over it and return to the Father who will eliminate our spiritual poverty as we inherit the kingdom of God. Um, As soon as the prodigal came back, his father eliminated his spiritual poverty, also eliminated his physical poverty at that point because he restored him back to sonship. Last thing that we should do with our sin is have self-pity or wallow in false humility, because that's actually a form of pride. Self-pity is a form of pride because it focuses on ourselves and not on the Lord. Because godly mourning shouldn't focus on us. It shouldn't even focus on the sin. It should focus on the Lord and his forgiveness. Unfortunately, we're going to be at war with our sin natures until the day that we depart. Um, We'll have plenty of opportunities to thank the Lord for his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. But unfortunately, we're still going to struggle with it. Paul writes in Romans 7, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not have the good I want. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do want is what I keep doing. The evil I do not want is what I can. This is kind of a tongue twister of a passage here. Sorry. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Even Paul says, I have a tough time with this thing. I am constant need of mourning and confession and God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Now, some have taken this to mean that it really doesn't matter if we sin or not because God loves us and he understands. And it's not really me anyway. It's just sin in me. So I can just live the way I want to. Um, But then Paul would go on to write that this is not a license to sin. It's just the reality that we struggle with it and we will for the rest of our lives. Um, We actually cheapen the grace of God and we trample all over his sacrifice when we willingly live in sin. Permanent victory over sin is assured to us in this life, but we're not given that victory until we stand in his presence. Then we will be perfected. Paul wrote all of this because he was sick and tired of dealing with sin in his own life and in the sin in the church. He was tired of it. That's why he wrote this. He writes in the next chapter that all of creation groans. All of it groans because we long for restoration. We long for renewal. It's kind of like, We've been adopted, but we haven't gone home yet. We've been adopted, but we haven't been able to go to our new home. The true mark of a mature life is not sinlessness. We're, we're not going to be sinless until we get to heaven, but a growing awareness of sinfulness. And as we mature and as we become more aware of that, uh, of our forgiven state, we'll start to live 
in a continual confession of sin. We will just, um, whenever we sense that in our lives, we will go ahead and confess it and get forgiveness for it. And then you will have comfort and joy because of that. Uh, when Martin Luther wrote his 95 Thesis and nailed it to the, to the door of the church, he said that our entire life should be a continuous act of repentance and contrition. Uh, I began to think about it this week. You know, we don't have anywhere in the Gospels recorded that Jesus laughed. Now, I'm sure that he did, uh, because people loved being around Jesus, especially sinners. But we don't have that recorded. It says that, um, you know, he wept, that he was angry, that he was hungry, that he was thirsty. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But oftentimes, Jesus is portrayed as one who laughs and how draws people into the kingdom with his non-judgmental spirit. Um, too much laughter, trying to, trying to get a laugh, but not enough delivering the message to mourn over our sin. So how should we mourn? Well, the first thing we need to do is remove all the things that are a hindrance to us for repenting. Uh, remove the things that make us content with ourselves, uh, that make us resist the Holy Spirit's leading, uh, which really just leads to a hard heart, because a stony heart isn't going to mourn over our sin. Romans 2, Paul writes, but because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you hold on to your sin, it's going to petrify your heart. It's going to sear your heart, and then you're not going to hear the Holy Spirit. Trying to hide sin or simply keep a lid on it is like that doctor who's trying to treat something very severe. You don't want a doctor that's going to lie to you because it's going to be painful. You want a doctor that's going to deal with your sickness severely to get rid of it. If Jesus went to the cross for it, then our need for it is great indeed. There's a rather uh, controversial verse in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's really not that difficult, but it becomes a matter of debate because people don't like it. Uh, in Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expect expectation of judgment. What did the sacrifice of sins provide? Provided forgiveness. So if the judge doesn't acquit you, then there is a fearful expectation of judgment. People sometimes ask the question, you know, do you believe in a once saved, always saved theology? Uh, and I would say, no, I don't. Uh, because if you are not living like you are saved, then it's um, questionable whether you were saved to begin in the first place. Um, we can walk away from the grace of God if you do not want to spend eternity with God, with the Father, then he is not going to make you do that. The writer of Hebrews makes it pretty clear that any gospel that teaches otherwise is a false gospel. Uh, it's presuming upon his grace, and it's a hindrance to mourning. Um, that type of thinking leads to procrastination, right? I'll get around to it. I'll fix up my life. Later, after I, I just want to have some fun right now, but later on I'll get serious about my life and then I'll repent over my sin. But we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Uh, our family, we like to watch, you know, some of the Marvel movies, and uh, there's a line in one of them where the hero who is Thor is getting ready to head off into battle, and he's talking to the gatekeeper and he tells him, he said, "I have no plans to die today," and the gatekeeper Hamdel says, "None do." 
None do. We're not promised tomorrow. So we need to eliminate the hindrances and we need to study the scriptures. Read the examples of people in the scriptures who tried to hide their sin or tried to not deal with it and see how it affected them, see how it affected the others around them. And if we choose to leave these hurdles in place, try to hide our sin, then it's going to rob us of the comfort and the joy that God offers and it robs him of his glory. It's really just spitting in the face of the one um, who offers us forgiveness and comfort. But when we're broken over our sins, we'll say that you are forgiven, go and sin no more. That's what God says to us when we mourn over it. Okay, so you might say, Nathan, give us some hope. This is sad stuff. We're talking about mourning. For those who mourn, the promise is that they will be comforted. That's why we're blessed. It's not the mourning that blesses, but it's the comfort that God gives. The word that's used in the Greek here is parakaleo, which means to come alongside, or it means helper, literally. It's the same word that gets used for the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Comfort descends from the Father by Jesus. And when Jesus left, he said, I'm going to send you another comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comforts us, and then we take that comfort that we've been given, and we use it to comfort others as well. All right, we're going to wrap up. I uh, was reading this week about uh, when I was reading about mourning, and specifically this ancient uh, practice of having uh, tear bottles. Has anybody ever heard of that? Um, In ancient times, they would have tear bottles, and I bought some. They're in the boxes back there. You guys can take one with you as you leave. And I just put a couple scriptures in here. And what would happen is women would have these bottles and they would catch their tears in them and save them when they were mourning. And legend says that a lot of times they would bury these tear bottles with the dead as a sign of their mourning. Um, they, would, uh, they would put it in those caskets goes all the way back, predates Rome, actually. And those people, if you were rich, you could afford to pay for mourners, uh, people that would cry outside your door to show that you were sad if you could afford them. And the more tears you collected, the more you could get for your you know, actual work of mourning. And then it you know, regained some popularity during the Victorian era. And these ones were pretty cool because what would happen is the stopper would be porous. So it would have holes in it. So you would collect your tears. And then when they had evaporated, that would mark the ending of your morning. That would be the end of the morning period when all the tears had evaporated. And then during the Civil War, women would collect their tears so they could show their husbands when they got back from war how much they had missed them. King David, I thought this was interesting. King David writes... In Psalm 56, 8, which is one of the verses that's in here. You have kept count of my tossings, my tossings and turnings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This is beautiful imagery. God sees every tear that we cry. No sorrow goes unnoticed. No pain goes unfelt by our Heavenly Father who is so compassionate. And one day, just like those tear catchers of the Victorian area that were porous, one day all those tears are going to evaporate. They're all going to be gone. They're going to be wiped away by the hand of God. In Revelation 21.4, it says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. 
time of mourning will be over and we'll just live in everlasting comfort. And that's a pretty, pretty amazing thought, a pretty strengthening thought for me uh, as we walk through all of the sad, sorrowful things of this world. Um, Alicia was just, you know, listening. She said, you know, the more you listen to this stuff, it gets pretty depressing. It gets depressing to see and hear all the things that are going on in the world right now. Um, and it can really overwhelm you if you let it. Um, but, you know, while we do have sorrows that are common to everybody. What we're called to do as sons and daughters, as his children, is to mourn over our sin, to be broken over it so we can confess it, so that he can forgive us, so that we can have that joy and be comforted. Hallelujah.